podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Um, we're living in a post-Championship League world. The Championship League is over. Uh, I feel a bit like Windsor Davis in It Ain't Half Hot Mom. Uh, now already people under the age of 45 are saying, what the hell are you talking about? But Windsor Davis in It Ain't Half Hot Mom, he comes back from the war and suddenly has nowhere to go. <laughs> that's, the, that's how it ends. He has to go and stay with one of his friends. He's got nowhere to go. Uh, it's not quite true of me. I have got a home. But uh, the Championship League is over. And thoroughly enjoyable. Well done to Sean Murphy, um, who played so well. Cued with great authority. Really very reminiscent of, of how he played You know, the back end of last season. And he's now won 12 ranking titles. Three this year. Um, we don't think of calendar years in snooker. We think of seasons. But the fact is, in 2023, he's won three ranking titles. He's looking... Uh, like a player, certainly, who can have a lot more success this season. Um, just very, very impressive. And it's interesting that, you know, despite the very short format, it's quite cutthroat, short matches, first format of the season, so, you know, a few people were a bit rusty. It was still two multi-champions in the final. It was Sean Murphy and Mark Williams. Um, the, you know, the cream rose to the top. And we saw a bit of pressure come to bear here and there uh, in the latter stages the last week. Very enjoyable last week. Um, and... A nice, uh, a nice way to sort of start the season, I think. And we've had a letter, actually. Not a letter. <laughs> it's not 1987. We've had an email from Richard Ratcliffe about the Championship League. So let's start with that. He says, uh, I've recently been watching the Championship League. This tournament might not be the high, most high-profile event, but it does have lots to commend it. The format allows eight players a day to shine, playing multiple matches, giving them much-valued table time on TV and online. Many top players don't enter. That's their prerogative. So it allows top-up players to enter the fray. As they play Q-School and did well enough to finish high on that list, this is a good reward opportunity for them. It also shows the viewers who's on the fringe of the professional game, like the Snooker Legends 900 does. I've been very impressed with the insightful comments made by all commentators. There is a chance to hear new voices, to join the more experienced voices such as yourself and Phil Yates. Gary Wilson, Ross Muir, Lee Walker and others have been excellent. Championship League also gives you and Phil a chance to dazzle with your fantastic facts with statistical analysis second to none. I enjoy this aspect of the game. May I add a few insights of my own? It's also a little niche, so hopefully perfect for the podcast. Well, listen, you're in the right place, Richard. Mentioned regularly is John Higgins, capture of the Players' Championship in 2021. John won the tournament, winning 28 frames and losing a paltry four. This is rightly hailed as one of the most dominant wins ever, Higgins himself citing it as possibly the best he's ever played. However, this in fact was the second most dominant display in a ranking title. Uh, it was in fact trumped in the very next tournament, uh, trumped with a capital T there, in the very next tournament following the aforementioned Players' Championship in 2021. This was also played in Milton Keynes, as so many tournaments were in that season. Judd Trump won the Gibraltar Open, winning 28 frames and losing an extremely paltry three. Not as high profile a tournament as the Players' Championship, but still a ranking tournament. And finally, a question for you and Phil and whoever else wants to join in. And I've never heard this mentioned in commentary. Who is the only player to win a professional snooker tournament after losing more frames than he won during the whole tournament? I will provide the answer next week. So already here we've got a cliffhanger. Thank you, Richard. We've got a cliffhanger for next week. I've been thinking about this, Richard. Um, the only one I could think of off the top of my head was the 1998 Irish Masters was won by Ronnie O'Sullivan, but he failed at a test for cannabis and he was stripped of the title and it was awarded to Ken Doherty. Now, Ken had lost 9-3 in the final. So clearly he had lost more frames than he'd won, but he is on paper the champion. I'm not sure anyone really regards him as the winner of that tournament, Ken included. But the fact is, 
when Ronnie was stripped of the title, Ken was awarded the trophy. So that may be the answer, but you may have a more fiendish answer up your sleeve. And already, now I say we're going to find out the answer next week. I'm not doing the podcast next week, so I'm going away. <laughs> so this really is, this is like, uh, <laughs> I talk about Aki Tandel Hotman. This is like Who Shot JR? Because that, Who Shot JR, the whole summer, people were talking about that and they had to wait until the autumn when the program came back on, Dallas, uh, to find out. Now we won't have to wait quite that long, but Richard has teased us there and in a few weeks' time, We'll have the answer. If that's, that's not a reason to stay subscribed, I don't know what is. Um, <laughs> so anyway, the Championship League is done for another year. I think, but I believe next year um, it will be slightly shorter. It's going to be back on, and I know there's a, a, an issue with Viaplay, which apparently is shutting down its uh, UK operations. That will not stop the Championship League. Uh, frankly, an apocalypse couldn't stop the Championship League. It will continue, um, but I believe it will be played over a slightly shorter span, and that's good news actually because. It, it, the reason for that is because the World Snooker Tour calendar for next season, so we're talking 2024-25, is apparently going to include more events, and so they need, obviously, more dates. So anyway, that's that's to come next year. Um, last week, I spoke to Tom Rowell, the uh, Chief Communications and Marketing Officer for World Snooker Tour, and I was very grateful for Tom to come on. And it's important to say, actually, he asked to come on, because he heard the podcast the week before where fans were discussing issues, and he thought it would be helpful for someone from World Snooker Tour to come on and discuss some of those issues and provide answers and also take questions. And I thought he spoke really well. I thought that he was very open. And crucially, because World Snooker Tour and, and the various iterations of it over the years have been guilty of the opposite of this, he wasn't at all defensive. He actually answered the questions. He admitted where there were failings. He resolved to put them right. I think that's exactly what you want. It's quite refreshing to hear such a candid... Um, you know, response to some of those criticisms. And, and clearly the, the, the theme was, yeah, we need to do better in certain areas and we, we plan to. So I was pleased to speak to him. Uh, the only way to really find out if, you know, if any of the things that he said are going to come to fruition is to wait. And maybe this time next year he'll come back on and we can see what's worked and what hasn't. Um, I think I, I was talking to some people at the Championship League who'd listened to it and there is a bit of weariness in the players in particular, because they've been, over the years, they've been promised various things. They've been promised effectively, it's the concept of jam tomorrow. The idea that things aren't quite great now, but if you bear with us in a year's time, they'll all be better. And this is, of course, what politicians do to get your vote. Oh, it's not great at the moment, but stick with us. If you stick with us, give us your vote. We'll make it better in a year or two's time. And players, to be fair, have heard a lot of this. And, you know, we keep hearing about all the might-be-new events. I mean, Barry Hearn went on Stephen Andrews' excellent Q-Tips channel last week. And he said, oh, next year there'll be six events in China. Well, let's hope he's right. But again, it's promising things in the future um, and expecting everybody to sort of hang on and wait and wait and wait and see if they happen. I've lost count, frankly, of the number of countries I've been told that Will Snooker are close to getting a tournament on in. You know, I've heard so many countries in the last sort of three or four years. And let's be clear, COVID interrupted that and maybe threw a massive spanner in the works the war in Ukraine has had an effect. I don't think people realise that in the case of Turkey, for example, that tournament, it was played in an area highly reliant on Russian tourism that went because of the war. Um, so there are other issues and, and reasons why these tournaments can't happen. But the fact is, players cannot earn ranking points or prize money from tournaments that are nearly put on. They can only earn them from tournaments that are put on. And I think that there is a danger sometimes in a little bit too much being promised that ultimately is not delivered. For example, just last year, I was told that there will be two tournaments in Turkey. Well, there isn't even one. 
you know. Um, so this sort of concept of jam tomorrow um, is something that I think annoys players a little bit. Uh, but we'll see. You know, if in a year's time all these tournaments happen, I mean, they're talking to Saudi Arabia again. That'll be controversial, uh, but it's the way sports going. Um, they've had discussions. Tom Rowell said last week with Macau. Um, so things are moving, I think. But we, you know, we need to actually have these tournaments on the calendar, not just sort of uh, the, the sort of concept of them, I guess. And players, I think, you know, are waiting to see if, if that's going to happen. Barry Hearn talked about prize money going over 20 million well again that would be fantastic but let's wait and see let's wait and see but anyway i, I was uh, i was grateful for tom to for, uh, tom for come on and speak uh, as he did and we have had a little bit of feedback on this tony grove i don't think was quite as uh, positive about the thing he said <laughs> he said great podcast our fans appreciate what you do thank you tony he said i listened to your interview with tom Rowell, the most corporate all talk man on the planet the man is obsessed with hits and figures this video didn't get many hits as only existing fans watched it and we want to grow with new fans. Okay, but those fans are the core of your business and if you lose all your existing fans, you have nothing to grow anymore. These are the same fans that do not get rewarded for loyalty, with priority tickets and so on. Not getting number one videos on TikTok does not mean your content is failing. There's no limit on online con content. Create multiple types to keep core fans happy and attract new ones. I don't get this, oh, we've got other stuff to do, so Henry beat us to this and that rubbish. Luca is the world champion, for God's sake, and he played the modern attacking snooker you want. Give him a few weeks to let it sink in and go and interview the man. Do a TikTok of his new car. I think it's fair to say Tony's not a fan of TikTok, but anyway, we'll continue. He says, uh, employ some more people. There's clearly plenty of money, as if you look at the prize money, this is heavily skewed towards winners and finalists. This skews the rankings anyway, so use some of that to create a couple more junior senior positions. I saw an advert recently where Will Snooker were looking for a content creator with all the latest skills to run social media and video, video editing and so on. They were offering something like 24 grand. Even a graduate would kick you up the arse, then laugh and run away at that. <laughs> Tony's just getting into his stride here. He says, if you want a cutting-edge website and online content, then pay for the best talent. The Masters Golf website wasn't knocked up by a student for beer money. I understand a lot of what he's saying from a business perspective, but it's all talk with little evidence of results so far. I could sense you were getting a little frustrated with him at times in this regard. Uh, also, the current scoring system is a massive embarrassment. Golf, tennis, darts, etc. would never show themselves up in this way. Fans have to go to snooker.org to get the latest data. Wait until the new platform is ready until releasing it. Release new things to hardcore fans in a beta version and get feedback that way. I used to go to the Crucible for several days each year, but it seems to be losing its family atmosphere and is becoming quite faceless and more corporate. Within 10 years, it'll be a 4,000-seater somewhere where the unique factor is lost, but at least the winner will have a TikTok video of them dancing in a tutu with 4 million hits, so all will be good. The qualifying tournament is better value and more enjoyable these days. Well, I don't agree with that, Tony, but it's a terrific email. <laughs> and I particularly like the last bit. Um, on the content um, issue, I think it is important, actually, to have content for people who are not hardcore fans. I think that's the only way you can grow an audience online. It's quite interesting. Stephen Hendry's Q-Tips channel, which is snooker-focused. You know, it's mainly about snooker with snooker personalities. But it has a lighter touch. I think he's, he's really found the right balance of the two. And he's already, in less than a year, got half as many subscribers as the Will Snooker Tour YouTube channel, which has been going for 10 years. Okay, so... You, you wonder if this time next year it might even have overtaken them, which would be, I think, slightly embarrassing for them, but maybe just a sign of what content people actually want. Because I can guarantee 
a lot of people watching that stuff are not hardcore snooker fans. Of course, you need um, content for people who follow snooker and loyalty towards them. But my argument has been for a long time, create content that has a snooker theme, but it's not just about people potting blacks off the spot, you know. There's actually more about it, and they've tried to do things like this. The Joe O'Connor video uh, in boxing was uh, kickboxing was a, was a, an example of what you can do with a player to showcase their personality, not at a snooker table. Um, if if Tom Ralph spoke in a corporate way, well, he is from the corporate world. That's not actually I wouldn't level that as a criticism. As I say, I thought he was very open, and I thought he he gave his time and attempted to answer the questions properly. I do agree with you. The one thing that I didn't I wasn't convinced by was this argument that. Oh, Stephen Hendry, you know, he must have bugged our office, um, you know, to, be, to, to, to do a thing on Luca Purcell. Uh, the fact is, it's been best part of three months since he won the World Championship, and they've had opportunities. Two weeks after he won it, there was a civic reception in his hometown. Uh, all the local dignitaries turned out, local people celebrated him. That would have been a real opportunity to go over there and film with him. And my colleague Hector Nunns, the journalist, went over and did, a, did a, some news stories on it. That would have been an opportunity to show what Luca Brussel's victory meant in Belgium. But they were prioritising other things then for whatever reason, and it wasn't done. Um, hopefully, when they do finally go and interview him, you know, it will be, it will be done the right way. It will be celebrating him and showing what it means to the people in Belgium uh, that he's won it. Um, yeah, I mean, TikTok is not something I'm an expert on, but I think it's fair to say Tony's not a big fan of it. But uh, what I will say, Rob Spencer, now Rob Spencer, the referee, um, he stars in the biggest piece of TikTok content that Will Snooker have done because when he caught that ball that, flew, that Luca Brussel knocked off the table at the Crucible, like a sort of slip, back, uh, slip catcher at cricket, that's had like nearly 8 million views. <laughs> Rob's got not a penny of it, obviously. But um, anyway, that's, maybe that tells you something about TikTok. But it, it is an important... Um, way of reaching a certain audience, a certain demographic, so I wouldn't completely dismiss it by any means. Um, now, what Fionn Lynch, I think, would dismiss the WST app um, because he's not a fan of that. I just uh, One other thing, by the way, on the... Um, well, no, we'll read this first, actually. We'll read this first. He says, we, we all know the WST app is bad. This is Fionn Lynch, by the way. We all know the WST app is bad. Of that, there's no question, but it's getting kind of ridiculous. I was trying to find out the dates for the European Masters qualifiers, so as I always do, I looked on Discovery Plus for the date and time of the first match. It said it started on the 25th of July, which I thought was strange, as tournaments don't start, tend to start on Tuesdays. So I regrettably checked the WST app. The app said that tournament starts on the 24th of July. At this point, I was confused, so I went to Reddit for help. Someone sent me an article from WST that said it started on the 25th of July. The World Snooker Tour have said that the tournament starts on the 24th and the 25th. How did no one in the 1,000-plus person corporation not notice this? Uh... I know we are getting a new app and things are apparently going to get better, but I don't see how a new platform is going to stop things such as this from happening. I'm going to presume that the tournament starts on the 25th, as that's what the majority of sources are saying. But if you caught a podcast before the qualifiers, can you please clarify this for me? Have you or anyone else noticed this happen? Uh, well, it is the 25th. It starts on Tuesday. Originally, it was going to be the 24th. It seems that not all the information was updated, which I agree isn't great, really. I mean, you know, fans obviously want to know... That the, you know, the, the dates, these are pretty basic things, and clearly a, an error was made, I guess, and it, and it wasn't updated. Um, they don't have a thousand plus staff at Wilson Uber Tour, nowhere near that. Um, but you, but it raises an interesting point, actually. I was thinking about this. And again, it, it comes down to what I was saying last week, actually, about the, the face we show to the world as a sport. I've heard people say, fans have said it, players have said it about some of the staff at World Snooker. What do they actually do all day? And there's a reason they ask that. 
it's because they don't know. Literally, because there's no way of knowing. If you're if you're listening to this podcast now, okay, I talk about the event director. You might have a vague idea of what that is, but there's no reason you would know actually what their duties are, how they spend their time. These people work very hard, by the way. Um, you know, they what they do all day is they work, um, but they don't actually show the world what they're doing. It seems to me there's an opportunity, two opportunities really. The, the first one is you go on the World Snooker Tour website. Okay, and I know it's being redesigned, so hopefully this will be factored into it. Okay, there's no uh, staff profiles on there. There's no, I mean, Tom Rowell has, has become um, Chief Marketing and Communications Officer. You can't find his name anywhere on that website. You can't find the names of the other new people there. There's a list of board members, so there's a list of directors. And then there's no information about who the senior staff are, how you can get in contact with them. Um even the most basic companies would have a about us page where they list the members of staff and if if um, appropriate there'll be an email address there'll be a photograph there'll be something about what their duties are that will tell you what they do well snooker don't have this and it does feed into an idea that they're a little bit aloof frankly um it seems incredible to me that i, I if i'm the chairman of ici i don't know if ici are still going but we're on an 80s theme but if i'm the chairman of ici and i want to sponsor a snooker tournament how do I know who to contact there? I actually looked at this. There's a contact page, okay? And it lists various things like becoming a referee or complaining about a player or something. And right at the bottom, it, it says sponsorship. If you're interested in sponsoring a tournament, click here. Well, I clicked on it, and it takes you to a page with nothing on it. Literally, it's a page that's unresponsive. It's the 404 thing. That is what you get if you try and click on how to sponsor a snooker tournament. It may partly explain why we're struggling for sponsors. OK, so if, you, if you're coming from the outside and you're the chairman of ICI, <laughs> I'm going to pursue that theme. How do you know who to contact? It's just not good enough, is it? This is the, the company that is charged with promoting professional snooker and their own sponsorship page is blank. <laughs> come on, seriously, come on. We can do better than this, surely. There's another thing they could do to uh, show people how what the jobs are that the people do, they could film it themselves. And we talk about YouTube content. Next season, do a video on what the tournament director does all day. Follow them around for an afternoon to show what their duties are, what the event manager does, what the head of media does, you know, what the table fitter does, you know, what the operations executive does. Who, whatever job it is, let's lift the veil on this a little bit. Why is it going to be so secretive? Um, so anyway, the new website, when it comes later in the year, should have staff profiles on it. It should have contact details and it should tell people what, what these people actually do and how to contact them. And as I say, they could do their own content showing what these people do. And then there will be less of a kind of them and us feel and, and the idea that they don't do anything because that's never been true. They do work hard. They work very hard, Wilson and Couture staff. But it's a bit of a mystery to people what they're actually doing. Um, and on the merchandise as well, I spoke about that, which we talked about last week. Um, here's my promise, okay? I, I, I suggested putting on, putting the, you know, the World Championship trophy on stuff and, and, and other stuff. So as a motivation for World Snooker to do this, right? If they produce a t-shirt with a Triple Crown logo on it, okay, the Triple Crown series, if they produce a t-shirt with it on and put it on sale, I will buy it. I will wear it and I will take a picture of myself wearing it. Now, you can't ask for more motivation than that to actually make it happen. OK, so if if at some point next season they produce a triple crown T-shirt, 
I'm going to pay for it with my own money. I'm going to wear it and I'm going to take a picture of myself and post it somewhere to prove that I've got one. Now, I can't say further than that. My only other comment, I listened back uh, to the podcast last week. The World Snooker Tour podcast, you know, is at the moment sort of being re rebadged. Um, and Tom said that uh, it would be once every two weeks. I don't really know why that is. Why not do it every week? Why not do it twice a week? You know, you, you, we've got to use every outlet we have to sell this sport. If I can sit here on a Sunday afternoon doing this on my phone, surely their staff, you know, or whoever's going to produce the podcast could get together once a week and do it. So anyway, that, that, they're my sort of thoughts on last week. As I say, I thought that um, Tom spoke well, but there's still little things that could be improved. I mean, even, I'm not going to go into this now, but even last week they, they did something that had a negative impact on me personally for no reason. And I, I was annoyed for a couple of days about it. Um, there's certain things they need to sort out, is what I'm saying. And, and certainly lifting the veil a little bit on who they are and what they do. And to be fair, Tom did that last week because he came on the podcast. But in general, as a company, you know, they need to, well, what is wrong with having staff profiles on your website? I just, I find it incredible that nobody knows from the outside, A, what anyone does, and B, who to contact for specific queries. It's very opaque and, uh, you know, it, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. Uh, we move on. Sam Cole. <clears throat> I thought, this is on a similar subject, Sam's had some ideas here which I think are worth exploring. Sam Cole, I thought, a thought occurred to me while watching Stephen Hendry's most recent YouTube video with Barry Hearn. Barry was talking about his idea for Sheffield City Council to build a new crucible in order to sell more tickets. I'm very much on the side of keeping the crucible as it is, but if ticket sales really are an issue, rather than building something new to expand the capacity, why not make better use of the existing outside space? My idea could be likened to Hemman Hill at Wimbledon. Google has told me that visitors to Wimbledon can pay £27 for a ground pass in order to wander around and view play on a big, on a big screen. We already have the big screen in place in Tudor Square, but currently surrounded by a few deck chairs and a slightly pathetic selection of activities involving miniature snooker tables. The square has so much potential for food and drink stalls, merchandise, which we now know will be improved, a better seating area for watching the big screen, and maybe meet and greet areas where fans can see current and past players and the general public can see how accessible the stars of snooker are. I think this could even include the Winter Gardens. There's always one table in there next to the BBC Studio area, Maybe a couple more wouldn't be impossible. The Q-Zone table that the public play on is great for getting people involved. Maybe we could have another area specifically targeted to kids and families and another area for current former players to play exhibition frames at certain times during the day. I do understand that the basic idea of what I'm suggesting is to charge people for what is currently available for free, but if the facilities were improved in such a way as to make the whole area an entire festival of snooker, an extension to what already exists, I feel that people would pay for it. It would be cheaper than the tickets to actually be in the Crucible, of course. And maybe ticket holders visiting the main venue will be entitled to a discount. It would be a great way to spend time between sessions, as well as being an affordable way to attract families to the sport. Local businesses, restaurants, pubs, hotels, etc. could become part of the, of the Snooker Village by participating in a discount scheme for customers. I'm not suggesting we match Wimbledon's £27, but if it's made into enough of an attraction, then even the stingiest of punters, brackets me, would be willing to pay. Now to the discussion about the comfort of venue seating. This is honestly one of the main reasons that put, puts me off attending tournaments. Only the Crucible and the Barbican have seats that can actually be considered comfortable. People are right to mention Alexandra Palace for its uncomfortable seating, but by far the worst experience, or my worst experience, was at the last year's Champion of Champions in Bolton. I took my dad to see live snooker for the first time since he saw the doubles at the Northampton Derngate in the 80s. 
And while the venue as a whole was the worst I've visited, the seats were the particular low light. My dad had to leave the arena for the second part of the match because he could no longer stand the discomfort. The problem is the seats in that type of venue are those plastic type. So when someone sits on their own front of you, the back of their seat bends backwards and pushes against your knees because the legroom is so cramped. This obviously doesn't happen with proper theatre seats. Apologies for the lengthy email. I look forward to your thoughts on the Crucible idea. P.S. I predict a first-time ranking event winner for the Championship League. I'm thinking Nop and Singham, but we know, we'll know by the time you read this out. Well, he should have got... Thank you, Sam. He should have got to the final. Um, he missed a black against Mark Williams and uh, well, and didn't uh, in that crucial frame. He looked like he was going to get there, but uh, not to be. I think your general point has merit. The Tudor Square... The problem, I guess, with it is it's not a huge space. Um, they've tried to use as much of it as possible. Obviously, it's a public space, but Sheffield City Council, you know, obviously are supporting the event very much. They own the space. So there may be an opportunity to do something with it. Um, again, though, I suppose it, it gets difficult when you're asking people to pay more money on top of, you know, what they've already paid for, for tickets, um, which, as we know, the Crucible are getting more and more expensive. One One thought occurred to me, as far as I'm aware, they've never used the Lyceum next door, the theatre right next door to the Crucible, in any capacity uh, during the World Championship. Now, I guess that's because they've got productions on there. They need to, you know, make money from their venues as much as possible. But is there a way where the Lyceum, not, I'm not saying put tables in there, but could that be utilised in some way um, to provide extra experiences and extra, um, you know... Uh, facilities for the championship itself i don't know whether that's ever been discussed um there's not a lot of room other than other than these areas winter gardens you mentioned um is a public area um so you know again it might be difficult to sort of close that off although obviously the bbc have have their space there um so yeah it's a good idea i think but it's just a matter of you know how much of that space actually could you really utilize um they do have the big screen there you're quite right and that's obviously a free thing at the moment I guess what, what what you're saying is really rather than sort of wandering into Tudor Square and, and seeing that big screen and, and then going to the Crucible, you've got a ticket. The, the championship actually starts almost at the gates of Tudor Square. Uh, there are no gates there at the moment, but they have to put them up. It's complicated by the fact they have the head of Steam Pub uh, there and the, and the, uh, the that, 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 well, they call it Crucible Corner. I'm not actually sure what it is, but uh, there's another sort of public building there as well. Um, it's not a big place, unfortunately. Um, and that, that's kind of the reason the Crucible is always under under the scrutiny. What I would say, though, is, you know, the World Championship as a tournament, one of the reasons it is what it is is because of that building. It's not just a, a, a format you can just lift and put anywhere. The reason that certain players have done well there and certain players haven't, and the reason so much drama has been created there is because of that venue and because of the size of that venue. Um, and if it went to a bigger venue, yes, you'd sell more tickets and you make more money, but it would not be the same event. You know, I'm not saying it wouldn't be great, but it would not be the same event, and it wouldn't mean the same actually historically either, because part of the the challenge of winning the World Championship is to do it in that building that is so intense and intimidating, and you know, players have been found out there. Um, but anyway, thank you, Sam, for your views. Ian uh, writes, uh, first of all, I've just listened to your outing on the Frame podcast with Shabnam. You did great. Great pace, and as ever, your trademark considered answers. Thank you. Well, this is a BBC podcast that Shabnam does. It's on it out every week, and well worth uh, not just my edition, but all of them well worth listening to. 
He says, you also gave some of your thoughts on improving the sport. To be honest, I fully agree with the thoughts you expressed. I have three kids, teenagers, and they like snooker, really, because their dad loves snooker. They have TikTok, Instagram, YouTube shorts. That's where their interests are directed. I also believe that the WPSA should look into assisting with the running of snooker clubs, assistance with the upkeep of tables and balls, branded fixtures and fittings, posters of local players, social media presence and promotions, a section of the WPSA website to track club competitions, arranging for live snooker feeds from WST and or streaming recent or classic matches and or frames on the TV in the club. It need not cost so much, and as the saying goes, you have to spend money to make money. Take the case of Ireland. I think maybe four WPSA clubs, Dublin, Cork, Limerick, Galway, then say Belfast and Derry in the north, although that might be too much for our geographically disparate population. So maybe just one in Dublin. All roads lead to Dublin and one in Belfast with occasionally family-friendly weekend afternoon events if it were a national venue. Well, thank you, Ina. Yeah, I mean, I suppose what you're saying is there should be sort of official WPSA clubs with those elements included. I mean, it's, it's a good idea, I suppose, like everything it comes down to money and, and, and whether that would be an expense that they would consider to be appropriate. But like you say, you could be, you know, securing grassroots and, and further interest. There, there's an argument as well, though, that, you know, that where snooker actually needs to be developed is not in the UK and Ireland, it's around the world. And why not sort of direct resources there. So it's an argument that um, that is well made, but uh, it, it, there's a lot of factors that would need to sort of be chewed over, I think, before before that happened. Uh, Jack Carrington, random question, but something I've thought for a while now. When players break off, they almost always put the cue ball very close to the bolt line to play the shot and often leave the shot to nothing long red, which players pop with regularity these days. But why do they not put the cue ball at the opposite end of the D, closest to the bolt cushion, which would mean they would have they would hit the cue ball slightly harder to get it back to bulk and would surely mean that the long red, which always seems to be left, would bounce further off the side cushion and wouldn't be left on. I don't play snooker, I just watch a lot of it on TV, so I haven't actually tried this idea out myself, and I've no clue whether it would work or not, but thought that it was worth putting the point out there, and maybe someone who does actually play the game could try it to see what the results are. Well, that the, the, the um, <coughs> challenge has been passed there, so anyone who wants to go and, and try this, break off shot, with the cue ball closer to the, the edge of the D, um, rather than the bolt line, uh, please let us know your results. Chris in Sheffield writes, Hope you're well. I've really enjoyed the summer content, particularly the author's special. Anyway, while listening to fellow listeners' ideas for improvements, my thoughts turn to a new tournament that in theory could achieve special aspirations for the game in terms of global development and exciting formats. There may be a multitude of perfectly reasonable reasons why my ideas are non-starter, but it whiled away time whilst at one of my kids' swimming lessons, so it's already proved its worth. Anyway, enough preamble... Here's my plan for the Snooker World Cup. Uh, one representative only from each nation entered based on world ranking position with a couple of additions. No seeding, knockout from the round of 16. The venue rotates between countries. No repetition of the host nation if a new nation wants to host. Uh, last 16 is best of five frames. Last eight, best of 10 frames. Last four, best of 15 frames. The final best of 17 frames. All of the above could be tweaked by more snooker literate folks than me but you get the idea. Taking the current rankings of a snapshot, uh, as a snapshot, the lineup would look like this. Okay, so he's listed the players who, under this form, under this uh, proposal, would get into this this World Cup. Remember, one for each country: Ronnie O'Sullivan, England; Luca Purcell, Belgium; Mark Allen, Northern Ireland; Neil Robertson, Australia; John Higgins, Scotland; Mark Williams, Wales; Ding Junhui, China; Hussein Bafai, Iran; Nopin Senkam, Thailand; Alexander Osabaka, Switzerland. 
Aaron Hill, Ireland, Lucas Kleckers, Germany, Andy Lee, Hong Kong, Mohammed Asif, Pakistan, and then there's two more places, uh, the host country, the, the next highest ranked player in that country, and then the holder, so assuming that, you know, the second edition, whoever's won it can, can, can return to defend their title. <coughs> Excuse me. He says, I appreciate there'd be no holder in the first edition, so in my snapshot, the place will be awarded to Andres Petrov of Estonia. I'd be interested to know if you or any listeners thought this sounded interesting, even at a pub debate level, as opposed to any realistic likelihood of becoming a reality. Well, thank you for that, Chris. Um, yeah, it's a nice idea, but I, I, th- I suppose the problem with it is, really, it's another individual event. I suppose the point of a World Cup is it's a, it's a rare chance for players to play in a team event for their country. Because in an individual event, OK, they, they're representing their country in theory, but really, <laughs> I know snooker players, they're representing themselves. To represent their country, they need teammates, I think. I mean, I grew up with the World Team Cup, which I thought was a lovely event on the BBC. It's only like four days and they're quite short matches. And you got to see players from, for example, a, player, a, a country like Scotland, who you never saw in any other tournaments. They, it was their chance to represent their country. Um, you had some iconic teams there. I mean, like the Welsh team, Ray Reardon, Terry Griffiths, Doug Mountjoy. It was a great team. Later on, uh, the England team, Steve Davis, Jimmy White, Neil Folds. I mean, that was the top three players in the world. Um, and you had obviously Higgins and Taylor representing Ireland with Eugene Hughes when it was an all-Ireland team. Um, the the Australian team, uh, Eddie Charlton, John Campbell, Warren King, you know, some great teams there. So I always liked the three-player team. The World Cup later became two players, which I didn't think was as good. So if it was going to come back, I'd like to see a chance for lesser-known players from those countries to represent their countries. For example, Belgium would be a great team. You've got Luca Brussel, Julian Leclerc and Ben Mertens, three tour players. Not every country would have enough players who are professionals, but it's a chance for top amateurs to you know represent their country in a high profile event featuring top players um i think a credible 12 or 16 team world cup or more you know how many teams you can get would actually be really good for snooker um but i'd like to see three players in each team rather than two your idea is one player as i say i think the problem with that is it would it would it would maybe from even from a viewing perspective just feel like another individual event if the final was ronnie o'sullivan neil robertson would you really think that's England, Australia, or are you just actually supporting Ronnie or Neil? I suppose. So that's 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 not a criticism. It's just my kind of pre- uh, preference for it for a World Cup would be that it's actually teams because that's kind of what it is in sport, isn't it? It's teams representing their country. Um, <clears throat> we move on. Trevor Sweetman. I wonder if the subject of archive footage could be raised on one of your podcasts. I already have quite a lot of archive matches collected over the years from various sources and VHS recordings. I know the BBC have erased a lot of their old footage, only keeping certain finals and 147s, etc. Will Snooker Tour, however, as far as I know, seem to have a lot more, but don't release too much of it on YouTube. And when they do, it's seven or ten minutes of a final frame. I fully understand the issue of copyright, but what's the point in them having all this stuff if no one can see it? How about a paid-for streaming service from WST of archive matches or even make matches available to buy an MP4 video download? ITV will sell up to three matches for 155 quid for 90 minutes footage, which is a bit steep, but at least they offer something. The BBC won't help at all, even with their deleted archive, unless one is a former, one is a former player. I've heard of instances, though, where they've told the person that two DVDs would cost £500. This was some time ago, though. There's a couple of niche matches that I attended back in the 80s with my father, and I definitely... I would definitely have appeared on the TV as we sat in the second row at Sheffield. I didn't record them at the time, unfortunately. I've searched for years for these, and even the BBC offered the BBC up to 500 quid for them, but it fell on deaf ears. 
So unless they crop up somewhere on old VHS tape, there's no hope of ever seeing them. <clears throat> Very interesting issue, this, Trevor. Thank you for raising it. Um, because it's a bit mysterious exactly how much footage there is out there. There are certain people who, as you say, have, have taped it, um, but then they sometimes when they upload it um, to YouTube, they get sort of into trouble because of the copyright. Um, it's clear there's a massive market. Well, not, I don't know how big the market is, but there is a market for people to watch some of this old stuff. It's, it's, it's the history of the game, actually, um, and it's quite important to preserve it. I know, obviously, Roger Lee, the, the great historian, has a lot of footage himself, and there are other people as well. Um, it seems to me, I mean, World Snooker Tour, they own the copyright to all this material. Whether a paid-for service is the answer, I don't know. But it seems to me there could be some sort of, well, it's part amnesty, part profit-sharing um, plan. So if you've got a video of, say, the 1990 Mercantile Classic final, and let's be honest, who hasn't, okay, if you upload that to YouTube you can earn advertising revenue that you then share with World Snooker. So you get whatever the percentage is. Say it's 50-50 for argument's sake. So if you make £5,000 on advertising, <laughs> I don't know whether it would be that much for the mercantile, but anyway, if you make five grand, you give two and a half to World Snooker, you're still getting two and a half. They're getting money because they own the copyright. Everyone's a winner. And most importantly, Snooker fans who want to watch that final are winners. Rather than sort of telling people they can't upload it because it's copyrighted, actually... You know, in, in the world of YouTube, there's so much stuff up there. It's in Snooker's interest, I think, to have this material out there. So why not have a system where you can share in the revenues? If you own old footage that no one else owns, people want to see it, uh, but it's not your copyright. So you share the the the, the proceeds with with World Snooker. I don't I don't see what's against that. Um, and then this could um, solve the problem of you know this material being kind of lost to history because, as I say, a lot of people would love to watch the old stuff. Phil Spivy writes, Thanks for the continued podcast over the summer. Really enjoy them. For no real reason... Thank you, Phil. Uh, for no real reason, I was recently thinking about the respective careers of Steve Davis and Stephen Hendry. There are a number of parallels between them. They began winning and dominating in their early 20s, both won their last World Championship at a similar age, and both continued to win ranking events into their mid-30s. They also both shared a single-mindedness in their peak years. But it's their later careers that also intrigue me, particularly the contrast between them. Davis had a number of late career special moments that occurred past his peak that are still celebrated today. Winning the Masters in 1997, reaching the UK final in 2005 at 48 years old, and beating John Higgins at the Crucible in 2010. What a moment that was. Whereas Hendry, after winning his last ranking title in 2005, didn't seem to experience late career moments of the same magnitude of Davis. The nearest I could think of was his run to the World Championship semis in 2008, where he was outclassed by O'Sullivan, and his 147 in his last World Championship in 2012, followed by a comfortable win over Higgins in what is remembered as a poor match. There are a couple of major reasons for this that I can see. Firstly, Davis carried on well into his 50s, and Hendry retired first time out at just 43, so his opportunities for an Indian summer or two were greatly diminished. Secondly, Davis was more willing to accept the fact later on that his best days were behind him and to celebrate the occasional deep run or epic win, whereas Hendry never really thought of anything less than a tournament win as a success. There's no real point to any of this. <laughs> well, we could put, Phil, we could put that on the, as, a, as a slogan for the podcast, really, let's be honest. But anyway, there's no real point to any of this and it doesn't change anything or mean anything. Both are legends. It's merely interesting to note a contrast in how their post-peak years developed. Anyway, I've gone on long enough. That also could be a slogan for the podcast. I've gone on long enough. Um, <clears throat> well, <clears throat> yeah, interesting comments. 
it's worth saying they were both in, at their peak utterly driven. I mean, you look at Stephen Hendry in particular in the 90s. You know, there was one season where he won five ranking titles. You know, there were only was like eight played. Um, <laughs> and he would win a tournament. He wouldn't particularly celebrate. He'd, dr- he'd be driven back to Scotland and the next day he'd be at the club practising. And that intensity that he had in his 20s could not be maintained. Stephen Hendry, I believe, burnt himself out because he was so intense. But because it was because he was so intense that he was able to win all those tournaments. So he did it in a very short space of time. But he, it was impossible to carry on doing it. And the, the seventh world title, there's no doubt the intensity went after that because he'd achieved what he thought, I'm sure, would be something that would stand, you know, for possibly forever, but certainly for decades. And it did stand for decades, actually. It stood for, well, 23 years. Um, but also I think Steve Davis, so much of his career was about how he got into snooker. He got into th- snooker through his father, Bill, and Bill was was his greatest supporter. He loved coming to tournaments with him. He, he derived a lot of enjoyment out of Steve just playing, and I think Steve carried on playing in part to keep that bond. And then when Bill passed away, Steve retired. I don't think there was any accident about the timing of that. He decided, OK, that's it now. I'm going to move on. And, of course, he moved on to spectacular success in music and and other areas. Um, So although we often talk about Davis and Hendry in in the sort of same sentence, obviously, because they were the two dominant figures of snooker for two decades, they're actually very different people, I think, in in a lot of ways. Um, Stephen was was certainly addicted to winning and held himself to very high standards. Steve did as well, but he was able to accept in his later years that it wasn't actually about winning for him it was about enjoyment and just about playing just about playing snooker and as I say you know keeping that bond with his father um, I think I mean I understood why he did it at the time because he had other commitments but I think Henry did retire too early 43 seems nothing now does it when you compare it to you know some of the other other players doing well nearly 50 um, and obviously coming back later it's going to be almost impossible to to recreate those 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 days. But um, it's I think it's it's a sort of interesting insight into the fact that although we we often lump champions together and we do it with the class of '92, those three Ronnie, Mark, and, and John Higgins, they are all different people and they have different approaches and they have different mindsets and they have different kind of feelings about about playing snooker and, and why they're playing it. And um, maybe we we too readily and I certainly do this. We too readily sort of lump certain characters together when actually everyone is unique everyone's different um, just on John Higgins by the way the, the talkish snooker interview with John was fantastic it's one of the best snooker interviews I've ever heard and it's, it's true that um, and I'm sure everyone listening to this has listened to it already but it's true that John Higgins has not been interviewed maybe as much as some of the other people over the years and I thought he was very interesting the sort of humility he has about his career um it's quite, it's quite um, typical, actually, of, of the, the stars of snooker. The stars of snooker tend to be like that. They tend to play down what they've done. It's the people who haven't achieved much who tend to act like superstars. There was one at the Championship League who complained to me quite quite uh, vociferously that he thought I hadn't mentioned him enough. And I felt like saying, well, <laughs> well, you know, you haven't done a lot. That's why. Um, but the actual stars of the game are the opposite. They actually don't do that. They don't push themselves forward or big themselves up. And John Higgins was typical of that. It was good to hear, hear him um, talking about his career at great length. And uh, that is obviously available on the Talking Snooker platform to, to listen to. But uh, that was a terrific listen. I mean, it could have, like a lot of, um, well, I've been on the podcast, but like a lot of their podcasts, it could have been even even longer than the two hours. 
Um, anyway, that's that's there to 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 enjoy. We conclude this week with Steve Swindon. He says, I hope you're well, sir. I'm a fan of your podcast and I wanted to share this with you for a while. Having Hearing about your playwriting on the Frame podcast gave me the final nudge I needed to send this your way. Below is a link to a short film called Containing Safety. We made the film here at Tape Community Music and Film and it features a fantastic performance by the one and only Dennis Taylor. There's a really nice behind-the-scenes short film too which gives you a great insight into the project and the inclusive way in which we go about creating new work and supporting involvement and opportunities throughout. The film has had some really great outcomes for individuals and tape as a whole and recently played at a festival in Los Angeles, which I was able to attend. Anyway, I hope you enjoy it and feel moved to explore the process behind it. I think you'll appreciate it. Uh, always happy to chat about it if you're interested in finding out more. Well, thank you, Steve. Tape is a charity that's based in Wales and uh, I've watched this film. It's a lovely film. Um, it's, I'm, I'm going to put a link to it so people can watch it themselves. So I won't talk too much about the content because people will want to watch it themselves but it's essentially it's um it's it features a guy who's who goes to watch his care workers play snooker and dennis taylor does it you're quite right does um appear in it and he's, he's as you would expect from dennis you know typically very professional and uh very charismatic um i had the pleasure actually talking to him the other day about uh, for a project i'm working on and um you know so many stories and memories and uh from a life well lived in snooker. So I'll put the, the link to that, um, Steve, on, on the, what we, what we rather, um, what we rather, uh, grandly call the show notes. Um, and people can watch it themselves and, uh, your other content and, and best wishes for, it sounds like it's done well already, but best wish, best wishes for anything you do with that in the future. Do let us know. Um, that's it for this week. Now, as I say, I'm not, I'm not around for the next couple of weeks. Um, so the, Richard Radcliffe's question about who won a tournament having uh, lost more frames than they won, that's, that's hanging in the air, uh, you know, for weeks now, but, um, it will all will be revealed eventually. Um, in the meantime, if you have any comments about snooker in general, then do let us know, uh, snooker scene podcast at mail.com, snooker scene podcast at mail.com. The live scoring system seemed m- more reliable. Um, this is the World Snooker Tour Live Scoring System. It seemed more reliable in the last week in the Championship League than earlier on. This is a temporary uh, solution. So the, 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 basically the contract ended with the previous supplier. The new contract with this supplier started at the start of the season, but the system isn't ready yet. So there's a temporary system for the next month or so um, that's going to hold everything together. And it, it, it hasn't been flawless. I mean, I was talking to a player... Um, who he, another player? He was he was following the results on the live scoring, and the first match they had lost on the live scoring. So he rang them up just to g them up ahead of the, you know, give them a boost before the second match. Keep going and all this, and they said, "What are you talking about? I won three 0 The scores have gone on the wrong player, <laughs> which is not great. Um, and there was a match uh, last week. Um, the, 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 well, the, the last day of the, the third week of the Championship League. Um, a player potted a red, the referee put the point on and for some reason 50 points went on the score, the system crashed and they had to use manual scoreboards. Now this is pretty grim stuff really, it's a ranking event, it doesn't look good. Again it's about the face we show to the public and the face we show to the public should be more professional than that. And again it's no criticism of the officials, they're having to work with the system. But hopefully it's settled down a bit and will work for the European Masters qualifiers this week and people can get the basic information that they want to follow these tournaments because they, you know, we're asking the public to follow snooker we have to make it as easy as possible for them I mean you know there's not even CFAX now to look at thankfully you know we have snooker.org who do a fantastic job a really fantastic job actually and I must get Herman on one week because one character 
who I've not heard interviewed, is Herman, who set up snooker.org, I believe, in 1994. I mean, he was ahead of the game, not just from a snooker perspective, but from the perspective of the internet. So I, I will I will look into speaking to him because, uh, you know, they've done a great job. And, and when all else fails, it's always on there. The information's always on there. So um, anyway, the qualifiers of this week, it's live on Discovery+. Plus. Um, all four tables. I saw the tables being uh, being set up, actually, at the, at the Morningside Arena. They look odd without the cloth on. If you just look at the slates, you look at it, you think, how is this... <laughs> How does it become anything? But of course, once the, the green bays, the cloth goes on and the cushions go on, it becomes a snooker table. Uh, as ever, I'm just yakking here for no reason, so uh, we'll, we'll wrap it up there. But thank you for uh, continuing to listen to the podcast. We will be back, just not next week. Um, but we will return in due course. And uh, we will say, for now, uh, as we always do, goodbye-bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. <laughs>